Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Beautiful day here in the nation's capital, where tonight on CBC, a new documentary is premiering that is very fitting for 2020 and all of the information that we are confronted with on a daily basis some of it good some of it bad how do we distinguish between the two where has this avalanche of bad information come from the way in which information news has been weaponized wonderful documentary called influence this is directed and written by diana neal and richard Popblack, and it looks at lord tim bell who was a PR person. He got his start at the ad agency Saatchi and Saatchi in the UK. He worked on the campaign of Margaret Thatcher in the 80s and went on to create the firm of Bell Pottinger, which if you follow South African news politics over the last five years, this has been a major story there but that that firm was incredibly influential around the world and ultimately what happened in south africa was its downfall and this film profiles tim bell his life his rise to power but also the rise of information being weaponized and how important it is for us as people to you know really be critical, try to understand where information is coming from, and not be passive as citizens, right? That, you know, as we'll talk about on the episode, that being a citizen is an everyday thing. Being part of a democracy isn't just voting, that there's activity that goes into it. And I had the chance to watch the film, really enjoyed it, and had the distinct pleasure of talking to Diana Neal and Richard Poplack about the film again it's influence premieres tonight on cbc and cbc gem at eight o'clock across the country 8 30 in newfoundland and on the documentary channel at 9 p.m eastern and pacific time uh, of course it'll be available on gem as well so without any further ado here is my conversation with diana neal and richard Poplack. All right, so let's welcome in now our guests today from Johannesburg, Diana Neal and Richard Poplack. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Uh, thanks for uh, joining me today, uh, all the way from Johannesburg. So it's always exciting when we can uh, we can communicate like this, uh, long distance. Uh, so I, I just mentioned to you, I, I watched the film last night, uh, so I, I have a lot of questions about it. But the first one to me is... Uh, this is a film that has certainly a, a relevance to today and, and 2020, what's what's going on, but it's a film that clearly you've been working on for a long time. So I'm curious, given that when I was watching, I was thinking, oh, this is a film like made for 2020. What for you was the impetus to start following this story in, in this level of detail? Yeah, it, it has been a work in progress, that's for sure. Um, th what kicked this story off 
off for us, uh, or at least for me, was in early 2016, um, I got a cease and desist email from someone who worked at a company called Bell Pottinger, who uh, most of us in, in the journalist game uh, who worked in sort of geopolitics or, or, or internationally knew Bell Pottinger as the worst, the most notorious um, public relations company who loved to shut journalists down. So um, that was something that I sort of observed, uh, uh, you know, sort of absorbed, called my editor, told him what the situation was. He said, look, just tell him to, to go away, although he used uh, fruitier language. Um, and uh, lo and behold, about six months later, um, the my editor, Branko Berkic, um, came across uh, a, a leaked cache of emails that belonged to the Gupta brothers, who were a family of Indian uh, nationals who were the backers, the financial backers behind our massively corrupt President Jacob Zuma. So these leaked emails became known as the Gupta leaks. And within this cache of leaks was a whole bunch of information about how Bell Pottinger uh, was designing a racially divisive campaign to cause racial hatred in South Africa, not a difficult thing to do, um, that would disguise the kleptocratic tendencies of our president and the Gupta brothers. So that news went nuclear. Um, and one day Diana comes to me and says, look, Richard, I've been thinking. Should we do um, what, what, what would it take to get you uh, to make a, a documentary with me? And I said, there's absolutely nothing you could say that would make me do a documentary. And Diana <laughs> said, what if we took Bell Pottinger down? And I was like, OK, when do we start? <laughs> so that's sort of how things kicked off. <laughs> and Diana, for you, what was your interest then in, in approaching Richard and wanting to get this project started on your end? I was running a, a small production company alongside Daily Maverick, where Richard and I both work, which is this online publication, and Branko Brickage, who Richard mentioned is the editor there, um, and was kind of providing ancillary services to Daily Maverick, making videos out of the, the kind of the bigger investigations that they were looking into to try to make them more accessible and that kind of thing, working on a microsite, those types of things. Um, and when the Bob Pottinger story broke, it was just, it was such a revelation for all of us because I think you know, as Richard says, a lot of journalists had, had understood their role and had kind of come across them many times. Um, but I think for, for a broader revelation, it, it just made, it just crystallized what we had been experiencing as a country for so long. This kind of new sense of something rippling, something malevolent under, malevolent, excuse me, um, under the surface that was kind of almost, you know, felt like it was a, a different narrative, something more sinister that was kind of controlling the narrative. And nobody could really put their finger on it. You know, it started on Twitter and it was kind of bubbling out into the streets, essentially. Um, so it's it, what it was, was Bell Pottinger's pretty successful, although it was rather crude campaign um, that was just starting to just, you know, stir the pot. Um, and, you know, when it was revealed what was going on, I just, I, you know, I said what I said to Richard was, well, if they've done this here, then they've don't, no doubt done this elsewhere. Um, and it turns out that that was entirely true. Uh, we had no idea what the extent of it was until we started really getting into the research um, and it turns out that they've worked in probably, well, they had worked in around th you know, three quarters of the countries in the world, many of them in Africa, um, and had done all sorts of campaigns of a similar nature for essentially 19 years. And then, of course, there was Lord Bell's entire career before that. Um, and so, yeah, it was really just a sense of, of I'll, be, I'll be honest, it, it stemmed from a, a, a real sense of outrage um, and wanting to expose their trajectory um, and also what they've done in South Africa.
Yeah, that, that's part of the story that I, I find really interesting, right? So when this was presented to me when I when I first heard of the documentary and and heard of and sort of saw that it was about Lord Bell, I just thought this is a documentary about Margaret Thatcher and uh, the, the conservative government of the '80s, right? That was my initial thought when I just saw Lord Bell, and right. you know, I I was unfamiliar largely with the the South African part of it. So I, you know, I'm curious for the two of you. You know, obviously you're. Your, the revelations about what happens with the, the organization in South Africa, you know, how long did it take you to uncover the extent of their operations around the world? You know, what was that process like in finding out? Because a lot of what they were doing seemed like stuff that you wouldn't want people to know about. So, so what was that sure, process exactly. like uh, in, in going around the world and trying to figure out what exactly they were doing? What Bell Pottinger had done was, or, or, or at least Lord Lord Bell had done after his work with Margaret Thatcher, was effectively invent the geopolitical public relations firm. So before Lord Bell and Bell Pottinger, you couldn't look up in the yellow pages and find someone and say, well, look, I, I'm a dictator and I have a problem. Who do I call? After Bell Pottinger, that's exactly what you could do. The bad guys knew exactly who to call. So what we did was chase the bad guys. And one of the most prominent was, of course, the dictator of, of Chile, Augusto Pinochet, uh, for whom Bell, uh, for whom Bell actually worked for his foundation um, a little while later, um, and that's kind of where his career kicked off. Now, if that's who you're starting out with, Augusto Pinochet, uh, who who do you end up with? So a lot of bad corporates, a lot of bad men, um, and that's exactly how Bell Pottinger made its name. Mm. Uh, you know, I think fairly, we obviously realized early on that, well, we, we both enjoy the reporting side of things and, and can do the research ourselves, that it was just going to be a mammoth task to try to just tackle it, just the two of us. So we, we hired a, a crack research team uh, here in South Africa. Um, and, they, you know, they just kind of got to work and, you know, putting the timeline together, tracing the story. Um, and, you know, just the same kinds of names just start to come up all the time. There's arms dealers in, in Africa um, and the links between the various foundations that were set up by the likes of F.W. de Cloud, for example, um, and how they kind of start to work together to create, you know, what they, you know, these organizations that are ostensibly or what they say are, you know, NGOs working for the good of this country or that country, where in fact they're just political connections between businessmen and um, and former politicians who have a lot of good connections. And that was essentially the business model that that Bell built. Um, and you can just kind of see it iterated in different ways around the world over the course of his career. How much of this story, too, starts with advertising? Because you, you, you talk about Bell. He gets a start in the advertising industry. And it, it almost seems to me, you know, as sort of a, a crude parallel, that it's like a, a Franken, it's like Frankenstein, is that the, the monster is made uh, within sort of what it seems like a generally benign system, right? You're just you're trying to sell pants. And then it sort of becomes this larger thing so you know how much does the role of modern advertising and what bell did and the the sachi and sachi organization what they were responsible for coming up in the second half of the 20th century like why does it morph into this larger thing do you think well you, you have this guy lord bell um at that time just near timothy bell and uh what what does he do but he ends up starting out the, the most revolutionary advertising company in the UK in the 1970s, which was Saatchi and Saatchi. 
So off he goes. They create a whole bunch of really sexist, really racy, really racist advertisements and literally change the game. In 1978, they win the Conservative Party account. And their job is to take uh, a female candidate for prime minister and turn her into a workable product, which is exactly what they do. And as uh, Margaret Thatcher's unofficial advisor, uh, Lord Bell ends up winning three election campaigns for the Tories. So that arc from mere advertising man to um, unofficial advisor to one of the most powerful leaders in the world is an extraordinary journey. But then what he does next is even more extraordinary. He takes letters from Margaret Thatcher of introduction to some of the most powerful men in the world and starts to build up a geopolitical network that allows him to fix for these people, to advise for those people. So the journey from the art form of advertising to the art form of public relations is an astonishing enough journey as it is. But then what starts to happen elsewhere in the industry is that science starts to be, social science starts to be aggregated and people start figuring out how to start to make audiences not just pick between Pepsi and Coke, but how to make audiences or crowds behave in a certain way. And that's in the early 2000s when we start moving into weaponized misinformation campaigns. And Bell Pottinger was a part of that process as well. Yeah, I think I think in that regard, it's important to mention the character Nigel Oakes, who appears in the film. Um, and he was the founder of initially a company called Behavioral Dynamics Institute, um, which was essentially what he founded after he left Saatchi and Saatchi. He was also there uh, as a young man. He was interested in this idea of attitudinal change and of affecting people's attitudes and, and having essentially how to influence people was very interested in that. Realized in that process that that wasn't quite the direction he wanted to go in because what he was very much interested in is how do you change people's behavior, which is a fundamentally different thing. Um, he then went on to found um, the SEL Strategic Communications Laboratories, which became the holding company of Cambridge Analytica. And for, for us, that was a, a crucial thing to add because where Tim understood that you could make a, you know, turn a, a political figure into a product and advertise it accordingly, Nigel took it the ne that next step further um, and, and, you know, figured out how to add to that an understanding of how groups think and how they behave. Um, and together, those two things became a pretty potent combination. I think a lot of it, too, is this notion that people respond to fear. I think that's sort of a starting point when a lot of people mm -hmm. like me think about you know, political campaigns and, and marketing, mm -hmm. right? People are motivated by fear and distrust. And Absolutely. how much of this story is based purely on inherent biases that human beings have that these people are exploiting? I think I think it's important to understand that it goes a little further than that. You're right when we say, uh, and, and, and Lord Bell was adamant that um, the British public were a bunch of morons who were only motivated by fear. I mean, that was his view of human beings. He was a misanthrope to the last. But, and this is important, the weapons that have been created that exist, the non-kinetic weapons, and that's all the Russians care about, it's all the Chinese care about, it's probably all the Canadian military care about, is these non-kinetic weapons that make audiences or crowds behave in a certain way. These weapons can only function within divided societies. So their first uh, role is to try to sow divisions. 
which is really easy when you have some people working, living in, in a place like Toronto, probably making $14, $15 an hour at a coffee shop, and then having to figure out how to pay $2,000 worth of rent every month, and other people who are making four, dollars $500,000 and easily affording their, their, their grand home. Those social divisions, which are basically global now, we live in a, a, a time of institutionalized inequality, those are the social conditions in which these weapons are very, very effective. Mm. So fear is an important motivating factor. Hate is even more important. And what is the motivation for, or what do you think the motivation is for somebody like, like Lord Bell? I understand the motivation for you know, political organizations, uh, particularly those who uh, are not big fans of democracy and want to maintain power. But for someone like Bell, because he has some quotes in the in the film that are really interesting, where he talks about, uh, I wrote down a couple, that power is an illusion, influence is a delusion, uh, that he's not doing things that are immoral, he might be doing things that are amoral. And, you know, I, I was listening to these things and wondering, you know, is this guy real? Does he believe what he's saying? Uh, or is he just a mercenary who's trying to make as much money as he can? A good question. <laughs> I think the, I think the thing about Tim is that he I think he innately understood that you know money and power were were what made what makes the world go round and I think being exposed to Thatcher and and seeing her rise and being part of her rise um, kind of confirmed all of that for him and it, you know it also the, the fact that he was so attracted to, to to fame and to power as he himself says um, you know really kind of pushed him in that direction so you know I think for him the motivation is really you know, he says it in the film, I, you know, I worked, I wanted to help people with problems. So I think in his own kind of version of it, he saw world leaders, he saw politicians, he saw, you know, big businesses as people who needed, you know, help fixing something. Um, and it was almost the strategy, the strategic game that he then kind of got involved with to figure out what would be the way to get them to, to their ultimate goal. That with, you know, a, a really good sense of, of how to how to reach people, what messaging works. I mean, he he was kind of the king of the slogan. He didn't write the ads himself, but he knew which ads would sell, and he was able to pitch them very effectively to his clients. You know, you think about labor labor isn't working, which was um, essentially not not a very big campaign um, at the outset, um, and became you know this legendary ad for the Conservative Party. He was able to sell that to Margaret Thatcher, who was very skeptical, but it became this kind of cudgel for the party to use against Labour that was incredibly effective. And I think he carried that with him throughout his career. So it was this this mix of understanding what messaging works, which has been incredibly, incredibly effective for the conservative um, camp, well, conservative project, if you want to call it that, around the world, understanding how to how to utilize uh, messaging effectively, um, mixed with this this real, I wouldn't say obsession, but a real love of being around and pandering to or helping powerful people um, that just made him indispensable, um, and I think I think that was probably intoxicating. So yeah, he you know he says he you know he has his own set of morals and he, that he ascribes to, and they're not the same as yours. And I think that was just a way to kind of get, dispense with the the annoying kind of sentimental type of stuff that that he found boring. He wanted to play the game and and strategize and and win essentially. 
what does Margaret Thatcher get out of this? The, the, that's the other part that I was watching this, and, and she's writing these letters. She's getting him in the in the door with people who are are looking for a fixer, as, as you said. Why is she? It, it strikes me as this is an incredibly risky thing for her to do uh, politically. Um, what does she get out of? building this guy up and, and presenting opportunities for him to expand his influence around the world? Uh, very simply, when Margaret Thatcher left power, uh, both her son um, and others around her expected business connections. So the understanding from the British elite, who would back the Conservative Party, is that they would in turn get backed when Margaret Thatcher left office. She was one of the most respected world leaders um, of, of her time. When she left office, the idea was to build up a business network. And that's exactly what they did. What they did. Tim was an important part of that. Um, the networks that he made were not just between uh, some of the most powerful and detestable human beings on the planet. They were also between corporates. So there was this connection between a British, uh, uh, between the British, the main British weapons company who made a massive deal with Saudi Arabia, Arabia, tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Where Bell was an important player in that. And so was Margaret Thatcher's son, Mark. So it's the standard sort of post office um, corruption, I suppose you could call it, that is tacitly accepted in the West after a leader leaves office. It was all about these connections of power, influence, and money. Yeah, and I, I also think she had pretty good relationships, from what I can tell, with the likes of F.W. de Klerk in South Africa, who was the president um, at the end of apartheid, and, you know, Augusto Pinochet. They, they admired her politics greatly um, and I think wanted to emulate them very much, which is why, you know, which is why Bell was able to just walk in the door and, and get those gigs. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there was there was something about that that was was rather appealing, you know, so this the spread of of the Thatcherite message, right, the, the, the neoliberal message was uh, was probably quite a big part of that project. And one more thing to add, Sean, and I think it's important to note that there's sort of a, a sort of an anti-intellectual streak that, that runs through the British elite. And Boris Johnson, the current British Prime Minister, is a great ex exemplification of this, of deeply serious unseriousness a lack of understanding of the moral consequences of bad actions, um, a disinterest um, for consequence. And Bell uh, really embraced that, and I would argue enjoyed that. Yeah, that, that's interesting, right? Because we've heard certainly in this country that with certain things that get said politically that we shouldn't take them literally, um, right like, <laughs> why which, would you yeah right like and, and it's yeah the strange double talk and you know sometimes and sometimes in the film too uh in addition to sort of my own sense of watching some some of the political you know now we get daily press conferences uh from all levels of government here that sometimes i feel like i'm in the book 1984 right like <laughs> you are triple speak right yeah yeah, yeah you, diana's right you are so <laughs> You know, so so you know, you mentioned Declare, right? So this is a this is a story that's incredibly fascinating to me. That these guys worked on the uh, election in which Nelson Mandela is uh, comes to power in South Africa, and yet 
this almost feels like a story of missed opportunity. And would it be unfair to say that the Bell Pottinger firm and, and Lord Bell himself was one of the most significant people in the way the South African constitution came together? Not at all. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. Um, what Bell was able to do for the National Party coming out of apartheid. So just a bit of context for, you, for your listeners. Um, in 1990, F.W. Klerk uh, unbans the ANC, uh, says it's the end of the apartheid regime, and we start moving towards the first democratic elections in April 1994. So there's all of this jostling that happens around that. Um, that effectively, the country is locked in a civil war that the government is promoting okay, and fueling. But what they're doing, they have one locked thing they need to get done, and that is to enshrine in the new constitution rights for the white minority. Now, the way they need to do that is to ensure that the, con that the constitution that will look sound and, in effect, be progressive. But the most important thing that the constitution has to have is the fact that the constitution will be the primary law of the land and that property rights will be enshrined in the constitution. If that happens, then the white minority gives up nothing going from apartheid into democracy. And that's exactly what happened. Lord Bell understood that, and his job was to ensure that the white minority garnered enough votes to ensure that they had a minority stake in setting the terms of the constitution. So, in fact, the, the voting meant very little. It was the jostling in the creation of the constitution that was the most important thing. Yeah. And something to point out here, when it comes to our very lofty notions of democracies, most of the democratic constitutions in the world have either, either been written in part or in whole by outgoing regimes, most of them authoritarian. Yeah, that's a terrifying thought to think, right, you know, when you really think yeah. about it, that mm. the structures that are put in place really to try to overcome these dictatorial regimes, but they're mm. the ones who do set the terms. But when I was watching this, too, I was thinking how much of it, not, not, not I don't want to say like how much does it matter, because, of course, it matters, but the immediacy of in the South African case, you know, Nelson Mandela winning, uh, you know, the end of apartheid, this this sort of slow progression of rights. How much does that immediacy or the immediacy of that joy for people who are supporters of Mandela allow them to overlook these other issues that are going on? So they're excited in the moment and they can't really see the the forest for the trees if you will you know how much of that is just human nature of we've overcome this we're celebrating this and you don't really get focused on the the, the details it's a, it's actually a great question um and it, 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 there's so many layers to that to that question as well but i think i think you know it's i probably shouldn't answer this but i'd like to give it a try i mean i was seven at the time but you know the sense really was that i think people were just so exhausted by 
the, the frankly the, the warfare that was happening on the um, on the streets, uh, the black on black violence that had, that had been stoked by the the nationalist government. Um, you know, just obviously the whole legacy of apartheid was. I think people were just so ready to move on and to to, to see some kind of change. But I also think that the campaigns that were run by you know Tim Bell and um, on on the the ANC side um, were successful in pushing this idea of um, the the rainbow nation effect, right? The change that's going to come where everybody will have equal right to vote. Um, this will be a fundamental sea change in the way we have done everything in this country. Um, and the focus on that day, you know, the snaking lines that were photographed of people waiting to vote, it was all, it was an incredible, um, from, you know, from what I've seen on, on TV in, in hindsight, you know, this incredible moment. Um, and I think there really was definitely a sense of, of unity and, and excitement. Um, and I think, you know, to your question, I think the process of, of kind of getting through that election and then, you know, forming the government of national unity, which was the name given to the parties that, you know, the, the parties that won the most votes, which was why it was so important for the national party to win two thirds of the vote. Well, how many it was, uh, one third. you know, one third of the votes was to be part of that government of national unity, because that would then go on to then write the constitution. But that was a process that happened over two or three years. Um, and, you know, what, what we tend to forget is, is how much power the national party had before the elections simply by virtue of the fact that they had control of the army and the army, you know, what do you do? Right. Um, So, you know, that, I think that process was, was very, very strictly controlled up to that point. The election was this kind of huge release. And then the process of actually of of statehood of, of getting this thing down on paper was a much longer process that happened in, in consort or at the same time as, you know, the, the truth and reconciliation commission and a whole lot of other things that were going on at the same time. So, you know, I'm not saying that anybody took their eye off the ball by any means, but I think that it was just a much, it was a much more bureaucratic process um, and easy to, um, I think to, to kind of um, paper over with more, more emotional and more exciting things. But I, I would actually like to take that one step further, Sean, and say that, to your question of what does it really matter, the, the, the vote was euphoric, the outcome was decent by all accounts, to which I would answer, we've been scammed into thinking of democracy as voting. And that scam has allowed us to rest for four or five years in between, uh, in between voting and sit down and ignore the other processes that take place around us. And the key factor that Bell Pottinger and others like them were so brilliant at exploiting was the divisions that swirl around elections so that all the other actions that, that take place in between elections is ignored. Mm-hmm. And what was ignored in South Africa, not by everyone, but certainly by the majority, was the fact that the Constitution was being rigged in favor of the minority. And the effect that that has had on South Africa has been massive. Mm-hmm. It can't be quantified. The constitution does not work for the people. But the marketing around it was certainly successful. I mean, it's been touted, I don't even know how many times, as the most liberal constitution in the world. And, you know, these are, these are the, again, the types of slogans, the types of little, you know, short and pithy sentences that, are, that allow, that lull people into a sense of security. Oh, well, you know, yes, we'll get our free housing and our free schools and our, you know, all the things that have been promised to get us to the, to the polls because, you know, because our constitution or, you know, because this is the system that we're moving into and this, this fantastic document that's going to protect us. And in many ways, it is a fantastic document. 
but it's the, it's the clauses and the caveats that have been built in um, very, very slightly by, the, frankly, the, the, the stronger negotiator in this, in this battle um, by the National Party to, to make sure that, that while, um, well, yes, everybody's now allowed to vote and there's this political freedom, economic freedom and, and economic equality has not come with that process. And that was not necessarily understood or marketed, obviously, that, that, that way. Yeah, and it's not as pleasant either to think of it. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I think of one of the one of the first documentaries that I saw relative to Nelson Mandela was it was a thirty for thirty. I can't remember the name for it, but it was about the uh, Rugby World Cup that was in yeah. South Africa, right? And the the moment of him putting on the Springboks hat and right. this being presented as this unifying moment for the country. That's a lot more palatable to people Absolutely. than division, right? So mm-hmm. you know, I you know that I think has to be part of it of just the human nature of we want to feel happy, we want to feel joy, Absolutely. we want to trust people too. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that has to go into consideration because I'm curious to get yeah. your sense of what role does an individual have? So, you know, if I'm in South Africa after the election, Mandela's in power, a lot of folks would say my immediate concern is, you know, can I support myself? Can I support my family? Are my kids going to be safe? Are they going to have a good school to go to? You know, those sort of core day-to-day issues tend to, I think, be at the forefront of people's mind. And how much space or how much room is there for people to consider the more macro issues of what's going on, who's pulling the strings, you know, how do we manage the society at large you know how do we balance that and and how do we try to situate the responsibility of citizens within a democracy who have you know daily are confronted with the daily realities uh, that could be challenging versus the larger issues that could of course influence those daily realities I think that's the fifty trillion dollar question. <laughs> um, it, it's a it's a massive question. It's it's a brilliant question, and the answer to that is that let, let's try answer it in reverse. What the weapons that Bell Pottinger and others like them created are intended to do is to obliterate individuality, is to treat populations or, or, or as crowds and as audiences. So, in other words, if you think if we start to reconceive the fact that we, as individuals, as individual actors, are being wiped out by these non-kinetic weapons, we start to understand the intentions of our enemies, right? So I think that's step one in trying to to understand how to combat this stuff. But as to your more specific question, what do you do to try to motivate people to understand the larger issues around them? That is the job. Of the fourth estate. That's me and and Diana's job. Hmm. That's civil society's job. That's opposition politicians' job. And it should be the government's job. And it should also be the government's job. But now, for so long, so many of us sat down on our hands and didn't do our jobs properly. Hmm. Right? So many South African journalists were bamboozled. We didn't do our jobs properly. Uh, Thank God Diana and I are too young to have worked in those days, so we're blameless, Sean. Um, (laughs) The the other thing is... um, Many actors in civil society tried to do the right thing. They were shut down. But we have to get out of this understanding that democracy is voting. It's not. It's constant day-to-day individual action that fights oppression within our own context. 
I do think that it's that it's important to to say that you know to to put it in context you know we're talking about an incredibly divisive and and scary time where you know civil war was only ever really you know a few days away it was a very very difficult time and I you know I think it's it's easy to look back and and say well you know this was a disaster and that was done badly but I think you know the the rugby world cup example you know that that was a a, a stroke of genius by a, a brilliant statesman Mandela to try to unify the country, understanding that that was what was needed at the time. Um, but the National Party was um, was about as opaque as it gets. They were they were essentially a secretive organization. So it was not never going to be on the cards that that there would be a sense of okay, well we're going to open this process up to to the people, even though that was ostensibly what was you know what was touted. It was it was always going to be a closed door negotiation, a hard, hard, hardcore negotiation between, two, you know, two parties. Um, and, you know, to me, it just, it seems like the type of opportunity where you can say, well, you know, this is the time to do something differently. And this is the time to make, to, to bring, you know, bring the people into, into the room, into the boardroom. Um, and unfortunately, that precedent was set very early uh, and the document that we eventually got as the constitution and that process was, was, uh, was kind of set. And, and now it's, it's the legacy that we live with. So, um, you know, it's important to keep things in context. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious to talk to you just a, a little bit more about the process of the film. And as I was watching this, you know, you have the, the interview with Bell in, in, the, in the film. And I couldn't help but wonder, why did he talk to you? Uh, you know, journalistic access is a magical thing. Um, I, I, I try not to delve into it too much because effectively it is kind of all we have, really. You have two things in, in, in journalism, your ability to, to, to get access and your reputation. Lose either one of those things, both of which are so tenuous. Um, I, I, I just, I'm always terrified to, to dig too much into it. Very simply, I was dispatched by the producers and Diana to go to London to try track Bell down. I did that over the course of four days. Finally got his number, called him up, went over to his house, told him exactly what we were going to do in no uncertain terms, told him that the movie was going to get made whether he liked it or not, and he said, okay, I'll see you in February. And that was that. So, um, you know, we've got some other great actors as well, I think, in the film. There's some people who really shouldn't have spoken who did. Um, and again, I, I don't know I, I, whatever magical forces uh, got them in front of our camera. You know, I'll, I'll kind of take it. Yeah, some of the ones that, in addition to Bell, that I was curious about, there was the is it the Black Land movement? Um, oh, Black First, Land First. Yeah, yeah. Black yeah. yeah. I, I I have to say, like somebody like that doesn't come across that great in the film, and <laughs> I have Funny to say, that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, yeah, no, go ahead. You're talking about a really radical um, and really divisive and offensive. Um, I, I don't even call uh, Andile, who is the Black Post, Land Post uh, the politician in our movie. I, I, I don't call him a politician. He's, he's a performance artist. Uh, and and his, his performance is uh, is rage. Um, right. But as it happens, I, I have a, because I've worked in political journalism for so long here in South Africa, I have a long relationship with Andile. And not a bad one. I, I, I find him absurd. And I guess he finds me absurd as well. So... Um, <laughs> The feeling's mutual, and weirdly, when I asked him if he'd be in the film, he was like, what time, bro? <laughs> and again, you're, you're right. I mean, there's no way she was sat down. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I guess that comes back to the, sort of what Bell is talking about in the film too. The you know the attention, the the fame that goes yeah. along with it, and these people for the most part are people who want to spin stories, and yes. who better yeah, to spin exactly. their story than themselves? I guess. Yeah, and which, exactly. and which is exactly our, our opening gambit when we say to people, look, this film is getting made. Don't let us be the pe people who put the full stop on your sentence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You come in, have your say, we'll give you all the time you need, all the time you want. Speak. And uh, that, that's effectively our, uh, our pitch. Is this film... No, let, let me say that differently. How would you describe the film? Because as I was watching it last night, I have to say, after about 45 minutes, I felt almost defeated. I was like, what's the point? Like, what are we even doing? Like, all these things, all these people behind the scenes. And, and you know, by the end, you f I felt a little more uplifted. But, you know, I, I obviously it's not a film that is going to necessarily make people feel super optimistic, although although I don't know. I mean, what 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 is sort of your sense of, the tone of the film and, and what do you think audiences are getting out of it as they see it? You know, Sean, I, I think we've realized that there's, there's really nobody benefits from, from pandering to an audience or, or uh, infantilizing people. And yes, it is. It's, these are very, very hard truths uh, about the world. And it's difficult to, to kind of, it's difficult to work in an, an environment that seems so kind of incessantly negative, but I think it's important to, to, to state that the film was born out of, uh, in many ways, something a, kind of a remarkable time in our in our history, which was the, the essentially coincided with the downfall of Bell Pottinger, which were these protests around um, around um, Jacob Zuma and the Guptas and Bell Pottinger. Um, the, the, the nation kind of saying this is enough. We, you know, once the, the leaks came out um, and people knew what was going on, I think there was a really strong sense that. People were just outraged and they'd had enough. Um, and what we saw was, you know, this this sense of of a real uniting against uh, the powers that be. And, and our president stepped down um, a few months later, uh, which was an incredible thing to see. He, you know, months before he seemed completely intractable and we'd never we'd never get rid of him. And at that point, he'd done he and his kind of cronies had done so much damage to the state that it was a re it really did feel like a despairing moment. But you know, the, to see to see the country kind of rise up like that um, and and say you know this far and no further was was a really a, an amazing moment. And I think we really wanted to carry that through to the end of the film um, that it is possible. It is possible to to take on these forces. It is possible to, uh, to have, to have an effect, uh, and a very big effect. I mean, taking down the president of the country is a, is a big deal. Um, uh, getting rid of a, a major, uh, multinational like, like Bob Pottinger was a, a huge success for the country. So those elements were important to us, but by no means do we want to, you know, m make people feel good about this. This is, this is not a good scenario. And I think, you know, our job is, is not to, to tell people how to feel or what to think or what to do, but rather to, to, to furnish them and empower them with the information um, and make sure that people are being, you know, the message ultimately is be vigilant. You, you, you can't sit on your hands between, uh, you know, from one election to the, to the next. Democracy is a daily, sometimes hourly endeavor um, that is that requires everybody in a society to to take part. And I think that's really what we wanted to get across. Be vigilant. Um. Again, I'd point out, where is Bell Pottinger right now? They're gone. Where's Lord Bell right now? He's gone. F.W. de Klerk is very sick. He'll be gone soon. 
all these guys, they're gone. And so I, I think the, the, the point that we're trying to make at the end of the film, one of our characters says that the arc of history bends towards justice. Being in the middle of that process, actually watching the sausage get gets made, we're in a real, real tough historical period right now where these weapons are being fired at us on a daily basis. We are in the middle of a war. And it's hard in the fog of war to understand where we stand. That said, we do take people down. Um, and uh, it's happening at a rapid rate. And I guess what our film is trying to say is fight. Mm. You know, complacency is not an option. Fight. Uh, the successes will come. And I think that's an interesting point, especially in this current context that that we're in. And we, we talked a little before we started recording, you know, the situation in Johannesburg versus the situation here in Ottawa. You know, uh, here we're inundated with what happens in the United States on a daily basis. And, mm -hmm. you know, this this moment of I've sort of considered it in part the attack on um sort of authority and by authority i mean you know the experts you know people independent experts who study these things who have devoted their lives to it and not just the ones you see on tv the, the ones that you don't see on tv who are presenting information based on you know science and and the best information they have and they get just completely attacked and michael lewis has mm -hmm. called this sort of the attack on the referee in society that we just don't have them anymore and they've been completely delegitimized and I, i'm curious what the two of you think that in this current context in which we are presented with so much information a lot of it conflicting what strategies can people use to make sure they're getting the best possible information and use that to not only govern their own decisions, but to be active citizens as, as you're talking about. Um, yeah, look, we, we, we try to stray away from prescriptive sort of notions of, of, of how to deal with a crisis like this one. I mean, you know, yep. we're journalists, we're not uh, information hygienists, but that, that said, I would argue that this, instant reaction that we have to information. We need to start to reconceive. We need to start to understand information as a potential weapon. When we start to do that as societies, and I think even here in South Africa, we slowly start to understand that when we receive a WhatsApp on a family group, we don't instinctively share the WhatsApp message. Right? South Africans, like most people in the, the developing world, use WhatsApp as our primary mode of communication. We understand that WhatsApp can be a weaponized app. So slowly, I think we're starting to understand the fact that too much information is equally as bad, if not worse, than no information. Mm. And that knowledge is power, but the power is whose? So I think over the course of 2016, with the Trump elections and Brexit, moving into these massive COVID-19 misinformation campaigns, as societies, I think we're starting to get wiser to how misinformation and disinformation campaigns function, to how bad information is disseminated. What we can't do anything about yet is the fact that our societies are so divided. And those are sociological issues that have nothing to do with bad information. They have to do with the fact that we are so unequal and so divided along economic lines. And that's where this bad information starts to weaponize 
along those social fault lines. Mm. The short answer to your question is fix inequality and we'll fix our problem. <laughs> but, I, you know, I do think, you know, I think it's worth saying that information is what I personally find so hard about it is just, you know, someone who has to consume information to do my job. It's it's completely today. It's completely overwhelming, and it it, it has a real material, emotional, mental effect on how my day is going to be. Um, it, it, there's that sense that you can't make you you can't decipher what is important and what's not. What do you need in order to get through the day, uh, in terms of news and and, and information? Um, and I, you know, to me, I just think it's as simple as as learning unlearning the bad habits of constantly being on our phones, constantly scro scrolling through Twitter and Facebook and and Google, and and consuming every single piece of information that is sent to us. You know, that we need to 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 kind of clean up our um our own environments and and try to frankly consume less, consume better quality, and consume less. Hmm. And and I guess the last question I have within that, you know, how much. You know, I don't. I I'm. I have a good job. I I can earn a living here, but I don't have you know ten million dollars to spend on information campaigns. And I'm sorry. I know it's tough. It's it's tough. Oh, here. But damn. you know, you know, it, it, I think that's part of the thing that that we're confronted with is there's so much money in this. There's so much money being thrown at groups like Bell Pottinger to create this information. And you know, how how can we or I shouldn't say that. Does it all boil down to money? The short answer is yes. Lord Bell was not interested at all, even in advertising. He thought even advertising was junk. He had one answer to the question of what won elections, and his answer was money. So the way we legislate our electoral processes is very, very important. The flooding of money into the zone, along with the flooding of information into the zone, is disastrous to our democratic processes. The fact that you don't, Sean, you sound like a very nice person. The fact that you don't have 10 million bucks to go out and uh, create what will probably be a very benevolent and healthy information campaign <laughs> is sad. But, uh, you know, Lob Laws does. So, you know, these disparities are... Um, are breaking us. They're shattering us. Um, we see it every day. And that's uh, just another reason why people should go watch this film. Uh, again, the title is Influence. Uh, I highly recommend it. As I said, I watched it last night. Really enjoyed it. So uh, Diana Neal and Richard Poplack, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks thank for you, Sean. Thank you. It's great chatting. So there you have it. My conversation with Diana Neal and Richard Poplack. And of course, I thank them for taking the time and joining me all the way from Johannesburg. Uh, super fun that in 2020, we can have a, a connection across the ocean like that. That is uh, pretty seamless. There wasn't much of a lag on that. I think about some of the episodes we've done over Skype on distance over the years. And, and not all of them were that good in terms of the connection. So certainly uh, appreciate them joining me on the show today and of course again influence the day we drop this thursday may 21st it's available on cbc it's airing live across the country tonight eight o'clock 8 30 in newfoundland on cbc nine o'clock eastern and pacific on documentary channel and it'll be available on gem so if you're listening to this after may 21st head over to gem the movie is influence 
it's as I said on the show, it's not if you're looking for an uplifting romp for a Saturday afternoon, maybe it's not your choice, but this is a, a something that's really going to get you thinking and really will make you want to engage with just the world in general and think critically about the information we get. So uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. So again, film influence available on gem. If you're not catching it tonight, May 21st over on the CBC. So thank you everybody for joining us today. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever it is you get your podcast, give us the likes, the ratings, comment on the show, just keeps it going, allows other people to find it and head back into the archive of, of what we have. Uh, this is episode 147, I think. Somewhere in that, it's in the 140s. And uh, we've done a lot of fun stuff, uh, especially recently with everything going on, uh, trying to put out some, some interesting non-pandemic related material for you to, to listen to. And we have uh, Cassandra uh, Luchik with her book, Enemy Alien, last week. We had the films Finding Sally a couple weeks ago. That's also available on GEM. We did the draft of all-time greatest hockey teams. Just a, a lot of good stuff over the past few weeks, not only here on the feed, but also over at activehistory.ca. Some really good stuff this week, uh, including a really nice personal essay that looked at age in the coronavirus era and how kids today how this will influence them. Really, really, really great stuff going on over at Active History. So definitely check it out. And, and of course, we are going weekly through the pandemic. So if you have ideas for the show, things you want to hear, please do get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. Of course, you can always email the show, historyslam at gmail.com. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you next week. But until then... If you're out, when you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.